6. So, how many of you guys are, are come on the weekend and listen to Pastor Joe? And how many of you hear his dumb jokes? Right? So, you know, those, those jokes are called, most of those jokes are called dad jokes, right? Have you heard this, this phenomenon of mocking dads? The problem is it's, it's become a little bit of a, it's become, it's developing a life of its own because apparently you guys are laughing at it enough that we've got some people on our staff that want Joe to teach them how to tell these dumb jokes, right? And so they've talked to him about it. And so I, I overheard a conversation with one of our young pastors, Pastor Kyle, who's who's uh, heading up our team to launch a church plant in Benel. And he was talking to Pastor Joe about speaking and about telling these jokes. And Joe was explaining to him, right, that these are dad jokes, right? And he was explaining it to him. And so there was some conversation back and forth. So fast forward to the next day and I heard Kyle, right? He had a group of people around him and he's telling one of these jokes. And all of a sudden, Joe just bolts out of his office and he's like, Kyle, stop, stop. And Kyle turns around and looks at him and says, what? And Joe says, listen, you can't tell a dad joke. You have no kids. That's a faux pas. You're welcome. You are welcome. And you're welcome. Listen, the quicker you start booing that man on the weekends, the quicker I'll tell better jokes. So I, uh, I set my, my timer for tonight. And uh, I picked it up when I was getting ready to come out here. And I had set it for one hour and 41 minutes. So, uh, so I changed it to uh, just an hour. All right. So... John chapter 15, so Jesus has walked through these I am statements, we've walked through them. Uh, every one of these I am statements that Jesus has made has been, listen, it's been a shot at continuing the onslaught of animosity between him and the false teachers, these Pharisees. I mean, the, the one of the enjoyable things about watching Jesus as the fulfillment of what God promised in Genesis 3 is the fact that all these years, Satan tried to keep God from bringing this, this promise of Genesis 3.15 to life because God said in him, you will be destroyed. And so all of the Old Testament is that story of Satan trying to intervene into that plan and break that promise to where Jesus never gets born. And then that Jesus that Satan tried to destroy ends up becoming a child and ultimately becoming a man. And so now the guy that God promises that's going to defeat Satan and destroy him, crush his head, he's now walking and talking among people. And so the ongoing animosity between Jesus, this fulfilling of Genesis 3.15, and the promise that this is the dude that's going to win, right, versus all these people who are following Satan and following his teachings and his beliefs, they're now interacting with this guy. And there's a constant tension, right? There's a constant palpable tension of this relationship. And the great thing about the I am statements is that every time that Jesus makes one, it's, an, it's just another dig into that relationship that, that continues this escalation to the point that all they want to do is kill the man. They just want to kill him. 
And so we get to John chapter 15, and this statement is different because this statement is made in privacy to the disciples. Every other statement's made in public. Every other I am statement, whether it's I'm the bread of the life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the door, the resurrection of life, all those statements were made publicly in front of other people. This one, Jesus makes with 12. His, his guys, disciples, people that follow Jesus, right? So for those of you online and those of you in here, how many of you are followers of Jesus? Let me hear you say amen, amen. right? So this conversation that Jesus has in John 15 is a part of this night in the upper room before Jesus heads to Gethsemane to pray and be arrested. So you have the, you have the, the backdrop. This is, this is the hours before Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a palpable, tense moment in this upper room where they observe the Lord's Supper in John 13. They, un, they, they take these emblems that will ultimately become representative of his death and his burial and his resurrection. And then we get into this conversation. And in John 15, Jesus makes his final am statement to this group. And it is different than the others because it's based upon Jesus and these people having a relationship with him. It's assuming an already existing relationship with Jesus, which means this one really speaks to those of you that said, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We got those verses, right, Mike? All right. So we're going to read uh, the first uh, eight verses of John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I remain in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You can have a seat. So when we were here last time, we started this. And since I'm trying very hard to get out on time for children's ministry and the families that come on Wednesday night, so you won't hesitate to come and let your families be a part of what goes on here. What I've decided to do is instead of trying to force everything into that time, wherever I quit, I'm just going to pick up the next Wednesday. All right. Everybody okay with that? It's okay. If you're not, I'm still going to do it. All right. So, so 
so we started this a couple of weeks ago, but my guess is because it's been a couple of weeks and we've had a couple of weekends and we've had a few nights where we've slept and got up and worked, we've forgotten about it, right? But I'm not going to go back and preach the whole first point, but I just want to say this about, about the first point. This is the first point. It's right there. I see it. Facilitate production. We're not going to go through all of it, but here's what I want you to know about this statement. Again, Jesus is saying to people who follow Jesus, so he's speaking to us. Amen, church? Amen, church? He says, I'm the vine, you're the branch, right? And I need you to remain in me. That word is the Greek word for abide, to dwell, to live, to make a home, right? I need you to abide in me and I will abide in you. That word is used 118 times in the New Testament. Over 70 of them are written by one man, John. And you know, based upon John's life, as the guy whom Jesus loved, the guy who laid his head on Jesus' chest, that John cared a great deal about his relationship with Jesus. He didn't see it as something to do. He saw Jesus as a person to be connected to. So over 70 times of a word that's used 118 times, only one man uses it to describe over and over again what being in a relationship with Jesus should be. It's where we take up our home. It's where we take up our residence. It's where we dwell. Now, I don't know about your home, right? I don't know what your homes are like. I don't know what your life is like at home, right? But I know what mine's life, my life is like at home, right? I've known what my life was like growing up, and I know what my life is like now. And there are certain things that happen within a home, right? And here's the thing. Are all the things that you do in your home things that you want broadcast to everybody who knows you? Well, then stop posting it on social media, okay? Right? Listen, the reality is there are things that we do at home that we do for ourselves. Sometimes we fight with our families in our home, yes? Sometimes we say things in our homes that when we show up for church on Sunday morning, we would never say to other people, yes? Sometimes things are great in our homes. Right? Sometimes it's a, it's a holiday and we've invited people over and it's festive and everybody's great. And when the night's over, everybody leaves and hugs and kisses and says, Oh, it was the greatest time ever. Everybody's had maybe some of those moments. Here's the thing about the relationship with Jesus. John describes it as being at home is that's where we live. And here's the thing you need to understand that where you live sometimes gets messy. My guess is if we all showed up at your house tonight, some of you would freak out, right? Because some of you came here and you know what? Not every dish was washed. Not every bed was made. Not every piece of clothing has been washed and folded. There might actually be a dust bunny on your TV stand, right? Some of you, I know, if we showed to your house, would open it up because you're ready 24-7, seven days a week. But the majority of people's homes at times is reflective of the fact that where we live at times is messy. Jesus says this. This is ultimately about a relationship between a vine and a branch. And here's the connecting point. Abide in me. I was backstage and I was praying before I came up here. You know, and you, it's easy to get down on yourself when you're a Christian. It's easy to get down on yourself for your failures. It's easy to get down on yourself for disappointing a God who's holy and who's righteous. It's disappoint or it's difficult at times to look at yourself and say, there's anything 
about you in a season that looks remotely like Jesus, I wonder if we're still in a relationship. Listen, here's what you need to know when you're in a relationship with Jesus and this is where you've made your home. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad, but it's always what? It's always safe. It's always home. And here's the thing you need to know about this idea. The whole point of the relationship for Jesus is his goal is to do something good through you. It isn't his idea to sit around and just wait and wait to see whether or not you're going to do what's supposed to be done. Because the second you don't, he's ready to boot you out. Listen, if that's the God that you were introduced to and that's the God that you ran away from church from, good for you. Because it's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture says, listen, make your home with me. Make your place of dwelling with me. The good, the bad, the ugly. All of it. Make it with me. And if you will stay in that relationship, I'll stay with you. And as I was praying backstage, I was reminded that even though there are times I really get down on myself, my home has always been with Jesus. I've always dwelt with him. And yes, there's been seasons where I wanted to run away from home, where I didn't want to follow what he said, but I've always dwelt with Jesus. And my guess is many of you've done the same thing, but because you haven't always dwelt well with Jesus, you felt like that was a relationship that maybe wasn't okay. That's not true. If you'll dwell with Jesus and make your home there, guess what he promises? I'll always dwell with you. It's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Why? Because Jesus has a goal in mind here, right? He wants to facilitate good in you. He wants to see the good come in you. And here's what you need to know. God's okay with waiting sometimes. He waited 40 years for Moses to be useful. He waited 30 years for his own son to be given the okay to work. He waited 120 years to put Noah on the water. God has no problem waiting. We do. We get impatient. You go to church. People judge you. They think you're not living up to stuff. They look down your nose at you and then you, then you don't go to church anymore. That's not who God is. Because he promises if you'll dwell with me, I will, I will dwell with you. I will live with you. Right? I don't know about you, but that comforts me. Right? That brings peace and encouragement to me. If you look at, if you look, I don't know if you have these verses or not, Mike, but in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 through 23, you can write those down. But Colossians 2, 16 through 23, what Paul writes about is a group of people, right, that do not care about the relationship with Jesus. All they care is about what you look like on the outside. And so he says to these people in this church, don't let other people look down on you because you don't observe all of these external religious activities the way they do, right? He says in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Listen, if you bring that verse back up, if we just practice that verse, I mean, imagine how much less judging there would be in the church. Don't let anybody judge you on what you eat or what? He says, he goes on to say this, or with God to a regard to a religious festival. Do you know how many people have left the church because the church, because churches like Tomoka decided to celebrate Halloween by giving parents a safe alternative and calling it trunk or treat? Do you know how many people left churches because the church was participating in a pagan holiday? Really? He says, don't let anybody judge you about these silly things, a new moon, a celebration or a Sabbath day. 
He says, these are what? Shadows of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in who? Jesus, where I make my home. Right? Where sometimes I'm messy and sometimes I'm clean. Where sometimes I'm happy and sometimes I'm sad. But he's the reality of all of this. Not the new moon festivals. Not the celebrations. Not what you eat. Not what you drink. But here's the thing. It's all found in who? Jesus. He says, no anyone who delights in false humility. See, people who care about all these external things, this is who they are. They're falsely humble. He says, and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen, right? And his unspiritual mind puffs him up without a notion. You ever listen to these people tell you about that, about those experiences? How amazing they are, how amazing they are, how amazing they are. He says, be careful about those people. He says, he's lost connection with the what? And who's the head? He's lost the relationship. He's lost the dwelling. He's lost that place of home. He's now decided that home is all about following rules and regulations and about what clothes I wear and about what meals I eat and about what prayer I say before I take this meal and about what prayer I say before I go to bed and about all of those things. And that's what we've made. Listen, that's what religion makes this. Paul says they've lost connection to the head from whom the whole body, us, the church, is supported and held together by its ligaments, sinews, and it grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic elements or principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to all of those rules? You see, the great thing about being in Jesus and being at home with Jesus is that I'm free from all of that. Why? So God can facilitate fruit production. I used to hate it when people would go to church and say this, listen, God is for you. God is for you. When I was younger in my faith and out of Bible college, that used to irritate me. Because it made me think nobody cared about being responsible. Right? I was afraid that that was going to make people not really do the things they were responsible for. But at 59 years of age, you know what I've learned? God is for you. Somebody say amen. He's for you. And he's also for the person that ran away from church. He's also for the person that calls Jesus home and is strayed from home. He's home to those people, right? He's a safe place. Why? Because God has a goal. I'm the vine, you're the branch, and I need you to produce fruit. The relationship bears something. What good would it do, God, to have a relationship you that was based completely on fear and production? doesn't work that way. Any of you that have been in a relationship where you've been dominated by somebody who manipulated you out of fear, right? And how you behaved knows how unhealthy that relationship is. Amen. We send people to counseling for that. We send them to trauma counseling for that. And yet that's how we project God to people when God isn't that place at all. He's home. Now, I get it. Some of you have a home life or grew up in a home life that you don't ever want that to be the case with Jesus. I'm not talking about your fractured home that was built on sinful behavior. I'm talking about a place that you dreamed of when you were in that home. 
A place where you knew safety and love existed. A place where you knew it wasn't always supposed to be full of abuse and anger and hatred. I'm talking about that place that you dreamed of and that you hoped for. That's who Jesus is. A place where you can learn to live and grow and develop and become something. But when you participate in activities to just show the outside world who you are, he says, be careful. You'll lose connection to the head. You'll lose connection to the vine. And here's the thing. Once we lose the connection, we're no longer worth keeping in the vine. Because here's the second point. The second one is he forces pruning, right? So the reason he facilitates production is Because he ultimately does this, right? So he says this. He says, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, right? I lift out, I get rid of. But every branch in me that produces fruit, he says, I prune it to produce more fruit. Everybody say the word prune, right? So everybody know what pruning is? All right. You have an idea of that, right? So I want to show you, I want to show you a couple pictures about pruning, right? So this is a pruning shear, right? Anybody own a pair of those? All right. Those are pretty, those are pretty deadly, right? That cut your finger off, right? So if you're the branch and that's what's coming at you, okay, do you figure this process is painful or without pain? painful. Listen, just the look of it, an innocent branch doing nothing. And guess what? This is going to cut it off. That's pruning. And that's what pruning does, right? And pruning is different from shearing. Pruning and shearing are different things. Pruning is done for the life of the vine, for the life of the tree, the life of the plant, right? It cuts off It cuts off so that it can become healthier. It removes those things that aren't necessary to the health of the plant. Those things that can compromise the plant. Anything that grows toward the center of the plant, we prune it out so the plant will stay healthy. Right? We prune for the health of the plant. You shear for appearance. Anybody ever shear a row of hedges? Right? You just go down indiscriminately and you're just, and you just wipe it out. Why do you do it? So that when people drive by your house, they look at your house and go, wow, beautiful. Man, I wish my house looked like that. And inside, they're throwing pots and pans at each other, right? Just, just so we can keep it real here at church, right? But shearing is for appearance. Pruning is for health and production. I need you to get the difference. Here's a picture of the difference, right? So this is a, 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 you know, just a drawing of what a tree or a bush would look like before pruning, right? And what it looks like after. And here's the thing that you notice about the two pictures. That loses stuff to become this. You see it? There's a bunch of stuff that's removed. Because what pruning says is all of that stuff is unnecessary for what this thing is supposed to do. So we're removing it. And when we remove it, guess what we do with it? We throw it away. Now this tree has a chance to be healthy. And there will be another season 
where we will prune again because in the next season we'll have to do this so the tree will remain, will remain healthy and productive. Everybody get that? Hedge or shearing is for appearance. Pruning is for production and health. Jesus says this. He says, if you're in me and I'm in you, I want you to produce fruit. So that when you produce fruit and look like this, I'm going to come along after you give me fruit and I'm going to make you look like this. And you saw the tool with which pruning takes place. Do you think that process is painful or not? Yes. Yes. It's incredibly painful. And here's why. Here's why. Because when you look at the word pruning in scripture, it is the word that means without mixture, right? It's clean, right? It means that there's no impurities in it. Let me read you a couple of verses where that verse is found. Matthew chapter five, verse eight. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse eight, right? That blessed, blessed are the pure. Jess, do you have those verses under forced pruning? Matthew 5, 8. Anyway, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said this. Blessed are the pure. Everybody say pure. Blessed are the in heart, for they will see God. That is the same Greek word translated pruning. Same word. He says this in Matthew 23, 26. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the dish. And then the outside will also be what? Pure is the Greek word. Catharto. Right? Catharsis is where we get that word from. Right? Cathartic. Something that's cathartic helps remove something. Right? We cry at times because it's cathartic. It helps remove our grief. It helps remove our anger. Right? When I'm frustrated, I clean and reorganize furniture. Anybody else? I find reorganizing furniture and cleaning cathartic. Why? Because it helps remove my frustration. The Greek word is catharto. Here's another word place it's used. First Timothy chapter one, verse five. The goal of this command is love, right? Which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Do you know what you need to produce the kind of love once? You need a what? A pure heart. You need a pruned heart. You can't see God. Matthew five says that. 5.8 says, unless you have a pruned heart, a pure heart. How about this one? James chapter 1, verse 27. James says this, religion that our Father, that God our Father accepts as what? Pure. Activities that are religious that God honors, that are pure, that are pruned and faultless are this. To look after what? Orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Here's the thing. All of those things require purity. Purity. And the Greek word means they require a season where nothing else has been added. And here's what John says. John says that process is called pruning. Do you know how you get a pure heart to see God? You got to be pruned. You want to know how to do pure and faultless religion before God with widows and orphans? You got to be pruned. Do you know what, how to, you don't want to know how to develop the love of God toward other people and have a sincere faith? You need a pure heart. You need a pruned heart. 
You see, here's the thing about pruning. It is an absolute impossibility to do the thing that God makes us to do in the next season until this season produces fruit and then we're pruned. Which means every time, Christian, you go through a good season with God, you're looking at a season filled with pruning. Because what he says is, there are things for you to do in the next season that you can't do until I remove this from you. Until I remove that from you. So, one of the things that... So, I grew up poor. Many of you did too. And when you grow up poor, you develop one or two attitudes toward money. You either don't care, or you care way too much. Right? It's hard to find a middle ground when you're poor. Right? So, as I grew up, I had a weird relationship with money. I was so ingrained in, in, in poverty from my father and the way that we lived that it was weird for me to have any money because I had convinced myself over and over and over again I shouldn't have any money. I'm poor and poor people don't have money. As my dad said over and over raising us, poor people have poor ways. Anybody ever hear that? I heard it all. My dad should have made a t-shirt with that on it, right? Constantly reminding us there were things that we weren't born to be a part of. And that stuck with me. And so my relationship with money was weird. You can ask my wife. I've had a relationship with money that's weird. I haven't always handled it well. It just, it's been a struggle of mine my whole life, which is weird since God keeps giving me jobs, has given me jobs in the past to manage other people's money. But I have a problem with that. I just had a problem with having it. I've never had a job where I ask about what the salary was because it feels weird to me. Because it's a weird thing that's ingrained in me. I came to Tomoka. And one of the things that God said, began to say to me when I came here was, there's a season of life for you that I need you to be pruned for. And it had to do with money. And I was not looking forward to that. And what God eventually taught me in in not staying poor, not always running away from money, was that there is blessing in having money and what you can do with money and how you can give it to people. I had never lived that. I'd never experienced that because I'd convinced myself that I wasn't supposed to participate and have those things. And when I got here, God said, listen, I need you to become generous. Well, God, I'm going to need you to give me some money. And he said, well, I'm going to need you to be okay with that. And I went, well, we've got a problem. Because I remember going to, this was the weirdest thing. I went to Joe and I said to him one day, because Joe is generous. I went to Joe one day and he said, I said to Joe, I want to learn how to be generous. I want to learn how to be generous. And Joe said, okay. A week later, Joe shows up in my office. He walks in and sits down and gives me an envelope. And he said, this is the first step in you learning how to be generous. And he left. Went home that night, opened up the envelope, and it was a check. that Somebody in our church, led by God, unaware of our conversation, said, hey, God laid it on our heart. We want to give this to Pastor Cord. And at the time, it was the, lar- it was, it was the largest gift I've ever seen. I, could, I just could not believe that somebody would, would blindly give me an envelope with a check with that amount of money on it. And immediately, immediately, everything in me felt guilty and ashamed for having it. And it was at that point that God began to prune me. 
Because what he said, what he said to me was, listen, I can't teach you to be generous till I remove all this dead extra stuff out of you. And let me tell you, the season of being pruned to learn to be generous for me didn't involve poverty. Because I was raised on poverty. I lived in poverty. I put our family in situations to be impoverished because of that struggle. God had to teach me a different way. And it was painful for me. Today, fast forward. My wife will say a lot of things about me. Over 33 years of marriage. That may not always be complimentary. That I've earned. Anybody relate? Right? But I do know one thing that she will say about me today that's complimentary is that my husband is generous. But it took being pruned. It took an act of God bringing those shears into my life and to begin to remove things that were in me. You see, here's the thing about our relationship. God desires so much to produce good out of you that he's always going to work toward that end. Which means, listen, when you're in a season and God's doing great things, enjoy it. Because when it's over, he's going to say, you've got a new season. And the new fruit, it won't grow on this place. It won't grow with this purity. It won't grow with the struggle. It won't grow with this doubt. It won't grow with this hurt. It won't grow with this unforgiveness. It won't grow with this moral addiction. Every time those things come up, the shears come out and God's desire is, I got to remove this. Why? Because without the purity of pruning, there's no sincere faith. Right? There's no pure and faultless religion. There's no seeing God. You see, pruning, we project it as the picture of those scissors. And God projects it as I need to remove things from you so in the next season we can do fruit again. Now listen, that's not always fun. But man, it works to the end that God has for all of us in that season. Jesus, in Matthew 23... Lays the Pharisees and out. I'm not going to read it. But if you read Matthew 23. You read what Jesus says to people. Who never cared about being pruned. So just as a warning to any of us in here or online. Who don't want God to prune us. Matthew 23 stands as a stark warning to all of us. That this is what life will look like if you don't want me to come in and purify you for the next season. You will entirely be focused on what everybody thinks about you on the outside. And what will happen is your cup will be dirty. Just bring that verse back up. Matthew 23, 26. Here's what Jesus said. Blind Pharisee, clean the what? Inside of the cup and dish. And then, and then the outside will be clean also. That's the summary verse of the whole, of the whole discourse. If you don't want pruning, you only care about the outside. And the outside is for men to see, your coworkers to see, for people to go, Oh, you're just so amazing. Right? You're just incredible. Right? We want the outside to look the part without ever cleaning the inside. Pruning says, listen, the true way to look beautiful outside is to let me get inside. 
is to let me get in there and clean out that cup. And here's the thing. God will do it as a loving, patient God who cares about you and who wants good things to come from you because he's got so much more at stake in this than we do. His reputation, his mission to see people come to repentance is dependent upon the work that you and I let God do in us. Pruning is painful, yes, but it comes from a loving God who cares about getting the good out so that people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Anybody remember that statement? How does God do that? He's got to prune us. He's got to dig out impurities. So listen, maybe you're in a season right now and it's good. Man, enjoy it. Take take it in when God's using you. And some of you are going through the pruning season right now where you know exactly what I'm talking about. God has been burying you in sermons and in worship songs. And every time you pick up a book, it's all talking about the same thing. Because you know God's saying, listen, that thing in you that's impure, that doubt, that fear, that anger, that resentment, that unforgiveness, whatever this thing is, I need it gone. And here's why. Because the next season of fruit production depends on this. And for some of you, you've gone through the pruning and you're back into the harvest season again. And you went, this season's better than the season I had before. Because that's what God does when he prunes in us. Does that make sense to you, church? That's how God works. And here's the last point. All of it is because, right? All of it is because of fruit production. It's all about this, right? It's all about that. John 15, 4 says this. Remain. Everybody say the word remain, right? Remain in me and I'm going to remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Leave that right there, Jess. This is what this is all about. Fruit production is all about relationship. And here's the thing. Don't think... This drives me crazy. We develop a theology, but then in the real world, that theology can never work. Is there anybody online, is there anybody in here that does not have some form of a relationship with another human being? Does everybody have a relationship that you can relate to, yes or no? Right? We all have relationships. Now describe them. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they fun sometimes? Do they make you cry? Do you celebrate great things with it sometimes? And sometimes, do you hate everything about it? Right? True? You know what a relationship is. Here's what he says. Remain. Abide. The word dwell has nothing to do with perfection. It has nothing to do with what you produce. It's about where you put your house number and put up your mailbox and say, this is my home. He says, if you will do that, I will remain in you. I'm not going anywhere. He says, because nobody, no branch can do this by themselves. Listen, when it comes to the pruning, listen, God does it because the next season is going to be better than the one you're in. And the season that's coming, you have something in you that's going to make it impossible to do because it's impure. It's not enough faith. It's too much anger. It's too much fear. It's too much doubt. It's too much of your past life and the hurt that you got as a child. It's all of those things. I just need to remove them because the next season is going to be better. Why? Because I need I need you and me to stay together. I need you and I to dwell together because you'll never be able to do this by yourself. Ever. And he goes on to say this. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branch. 
I'm the vine, you're the branch. If a man or a woman remains in me and I in him, he says what? He will bear what? Not just fruit, but much fruit. Listen, I love, I, I love being friends with Joe. And I hate being friends with Joe. But one of the things I do like about being in a relationship with Joe and buddy of mine, Jason, and others like that, is that I love watching them fight and struggle every time the pruning shear shows up to get them to the next season. Because I watch what people who really want this bear much fruit. That they, I watch what people like that want. And though they don't like it, they ultimately surrender to it. And the best part about being with Joe for 13 years has been the, the development of the man that I came back into a relationship with 13 years ago and to the man that he is today. And that's a man that has been pruned. That I've been able to walk beside him as a friend. And he's been able to walk beside me. Because, because ultimately at times all people say is the much fruit. Pastors call and they're like, how, how, how are you doing all this? Why is your church growing? Your church just keeps giving money. How is this always happening? How is this going on? Listen, if you want to bear much fruit, you gotta be pruned. Why? Because this is what God wants. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, if anyone doesn't remain in me, if this is where you make your home in me, that person is like a branch that's thrown away and withers. There's no relationship. It's like you've died inside. That's what's happened. And it only happens when you run away from Jesus. When you sever that home. Right? I mean, I live here. This will be my 14th year in Florida. And I yet, every time I talk about Illinois, I talk about going back home. I haven't lived there in 14 years. That's the dumbest statement I could make. But home is the thing that sticks with you. If Jesus is the thing that sticks with you, you're always going to be home there. Sometimes it may not always be pleasant. But here's the thing you need to know. Jesus does this for a reason. John verse, John 15 verse 8. This is the verse that summarizes the whole thing. This is to my Father's glory. This is what makes God's name great. That you, what? That you bear much fruit. You want to make God's name great? It's not going to happen when you have a great worship service. It's going to be when you let the shearing, the shearers prune or the pruning shears come to your life and purify you for a season of fruit bearing. Because it's to God's glory. This will magnify his name that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. So how many of you online and how many of you here claim to be a follower of Jesus? Say amen. You want to show yourself that way to your family, to your spouse? your co-workers, don't focus on the outside of the cup. Don't focus on about playing the part pretty, looking the part, saying the part. Nobody cares. Just the Pharisees. Jesus said, let me get inside. Let me clean the cup from the inside. And the outside, it's going to be clean as well. Because whether I liked it or not at the beginning, I believe in it 100% now. God is for you. Because ultimately... In you and through you, God is for himself. And when people see God, people's lives change. Amen, church? So let's, let's, let's become humble enough 
to go under those pruning shears so God can do greater things in us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this intimate conversation that we get exposed to in this room at the end of a three-year journey with Jesus and these 12 men. I'm grateful for these words that he shared with them and that these words remain true to us today as the followers of Jesus. There's nothing pleasant about the, the shears in our life. There's nothing pleasant about that purification process. But if we truly want to see our family, our, our children, grandchildren, our husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, our neighbors, our friends come to Jesus, God, remind us how absolutely important it is for you to get inside, for you to do that work so that the next season, that fruit might actually be the fruit that somebody grabs a hold of to accept you and to accept your son as their Lord and Savior. So grateful, Father, for these folks. Uh, pray your blessing upon their journey with you. And uh, as we continue to make our home with you, God, would you just continue to show and shower your love upon us as you promised in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.